I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Hi, everyone. We're back with a new episode of Tech Target News Targeting AI Podcast. Today, we're happy to host Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner, co-authors of The AI Dilemma, Seven Principles for Responsible Technology. Both are on the adjunct faculty at NYU's ITP, which is the Interactive Telecommunications Program. They've both worked as business journalists, and they now work together in the Kleiner Powell International Tech Consultancy. Powell has done research at Columbia University on responsible deployment of AI and has been featured as a commentator on major TV networks. Art is a former managing partner of PwC. Welcome both of you to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So I got the first question here, so I have the privilege of asking it. So uh, just to kick it off, what are your seven principles for responsible technology? Oh, my goodness. Well, let me start with the one that I think most of us need to adopt as soon as possible which is um, intentional risk towards humans. I think all of us, now that we have generative AI in our hands, right? it's democratized the usage and the ability to really execute on, on so many things that we imagine and many things that we didn't think were imaginable. But I do think that we need to have a calculus of intentional risk around the way that we deploy our technologies, the way that we use our technologies, to keep in mind um, that we're, once again, the, the very, very lucky ones. We get the, the tools first, but it means that we also have to have the responsibility of how they will impact not just the people around us, but you know, there are billions of people that are coming online every year who have no idea to what extent algorithms shape their lives. So I feel like we have a larger responsibility in general. Art, you want to come up with the the six other principles? <laughs> I know that, that's like your sweet spot. He's the one who actually originally helped us come up with the principles in the first place. And we drew them from what people around the industry were saying. You know, these are the issues where you know, they're working on AI uh, systems, they're making business decisions, and suddenly they realize, gosh, we have issues here that we have not fully addressed. So the second principle, is, we call it open the closed box, but it's about uh, the transparency and explainability of AI systems, which doesn't just mean the algorithm, it means also the company that created it and the people who engineered it and the whole system of socio-technical activity, people and processes and code that fits together and creates it. There is a principle which we call confront and question bias, which you know, basically AI systems formalize and automate what human beings do. And one of the things that human beings do is hold biases and assumptions, especially about other people. And that when it's frozen into an AI system has dramatic effect, particularly on vulnerable populations. There's a, um, there's a principle related to ownership of data, you know, kind of reinforce the idea that individuals own their data. We, our, we are our personal data. 
uh, that's the first thing people see about us, and we should have some in, some stake in and uh, ability to uh, manage and perhaps even profit from the use that's made of it. Yeah, if big companies are monetizing our data, we should be able to say we support this particular activity, but not that other activity. And if they're monetizing on us, we should be able to monetize along with them. And, and this is not just a should, it's a trend. This is an increasingly important interest that people hold. I, I was going to ask you to jump right into uh, the executive order and how that might or might not reflect some of your principles. But I want to just ask one quick follow up about um, the monetizing of data, Juliet. Are you referring to like this system of like micropayments, that kind of thing for allowing, you know, consumers allowing their data to be used? Are I've been you... thinking about this for a very, very long time, Sean. So back in 2012, I worked with Intel Labs mapping the personal data ecosystem on a global level to see who controls our data um, and what it would take for all of us, the majority of people on the planet, to be able to benefit from that ecosystem. And the only thing that we found, and, and we did a whole lot of research before working with us, Intel had also put in five years and millions and millions of dollars behind this research. Research. And ultimately, unless individuals have the capacity to own and to control our data, there will always be asymmetries of power. The moment that the individual has the option of saying yes or no, um, I think that the entire world changes. Now, with the advent of you know generative AI and deployments that allow more and more people to experiment, I think that eventually we might get to a place where we have our own personal AIs that can literally mediate and federate uh, our data and our data relationships with various entities, organizations. I, I'm also thinking that they're likely to be uh, data exchanges like eBay's for data, where you can see B2B data being exchanged, which is obviously already happening, but also consumer to consumer, consumer to business, consumer to government, and of course, machine to machine. I just want to ask, because you're talking about responsibility to humans, which I think is very important. And then the idea of owning your data. One thing that I found as a consumer, as we don't really do consumer news here at Tech Tiger, we do B2B, but um, with the, like the, Lensa app that came out earlier this year, or even Dali when that first came out, there was this idea that a lot of consumers are not aware of what they're doing, right? They're not necessarily alert as to like, oh, me participating in these tools, I am giving up my right, like I am giving up my data, I, you know, like, and so when you talk about, okay, responsibility to humans, um, how can we make humans responsible for themselves even though we're asking, I, <laughs> even though we're asking, you know, the 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 creators of these systems to be responsible, and you're talking about data ownership. I mean, I recently, like, for the past few months, I've been off Instagram, off Facebook. It's this thing that I'm doing. I used to like, I put my data out there every single day. I'm more like more censored than like the average person, but like we just do it because we don't care. So how can we be like as consumers be like alert and responsible for ourselves? I think that the moment that you start understanding the value of your data, you start to realize the power that it has and the power that we're essentially, for the most part, giving up. So I wrote this whole 
project. Essentially, this book is based on my dissertation at Columbia. Before writing the dissertation, I was doing research and specifically on data exchanges. So there are many Scandinavian countries, for example, that are doing data exchanges where, uh, for example, in Finland, um, I was working with the largest private company in Finland, and they're an old co-op, an old farmer's co-op that was built, you know, two two centuries ago. And they started out with this principle that everyone in the community is part owner of uh, the organization. Well, the organization is so big that it's the equivalent of a Costco uh, meets a Walmart meets, um, you know, all the hotel chains that you can ever imagine. They own cars and gas and banks and just they really have a monopoly in the space. And because they've been around for 200 years and you know everybody's ancestors, including their, their parents and children, all shop in, in the same ecosystem, every time they buy something, right, they get paid. And they get paid directly in their bank. There's no discount coupon or anything like that. As soon as the company makes money, right, individuals, actually see the money coming into their bank account. So it's much less of a microtransaction than, you know, imagine your whole world was utilizing your data, which it likely is, and you got paid for all of it at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the, the quarter, whatever it might be. So that there's a direct relationship in seeing how things are moving within the economy, how they're working within the organization, but also how you're an integral part of that and how these money flows are also, you know, potentially yours, as is in the case of Scandinavia. Now, obviously, that is um, a quite a unique example. And what's really interesting is during the pandemic, we also saw those data exchanges happening with neighboring countries like Estonia, for example. But there are many, many differences, obviously, between those countries and the United States. Um, but I do think that it's important to look at other models outside of what we know to see if um, there isn't a potential of more people being able to benefit from this knowledge base. But also when we talk about responsibility, I think it's very easy to point the finger at everybody else. So oh, the company should have done better. Uh, you know, the government should have done better. Ultimately, I do feel that we are all responsible for the choices that we make in our own life. And in the book, we talk about the distinction between control and the illusion of control. And Art, I don't want to take up all the space here. It would be great if you explained it. Well, the illusion of control is the feeling you get when you're using software to make life easier for you, but it doesn't, right? You press the button that says, uh, accept all cookies, and ultimately that may come back to haunt you with uh, unwanted ads that pop up on your browser or whatever. We talked to Sheena Iyengar, a, a management professor at Columbia, who essentially said, you know when you have control of your data because it's difficult. It's hard. It requires concentration. Now, actually, I think there's a role here for large learning models and for Gen AI to play in navigating some of these issues. We can't relinquish control of our data to even the most uh, accommodating uh, Gen AI program, but we we as individuals may well need help navigating the complexities of a system like that in the United States, where so many different entities have so many different claims on data. And we haven't yet seen a program that can do it. But, you know, kind of as you said, Sean, the boundary between producers and consumers is kind of blurring. It has been for years, but now it's really blurring as um, 
many of us become producers and that will lead, I think, to uh, the use of uh, producer-like tools in the hands of consumers more and more. I like what you said, where you said, uh, you know when you have control of your data because it's difficult. Because I do the same thing. At this point, I'm like, I just want to get to the website. I don't have time <laughs> to be looking up, like, which cookie I should accept or not. But going back to the point of, like, kind of that communal system, I guess consumers, we have control of our data. And then as the products gets taken, the Scandinavian system that you mentioned, I wonder what you have to say about like this idea of, you know, we've been seeing all these lawsuits of like artists, uh, again, owners of these LLM or creators of these LLM systems. Is something like that possible in that sense, right? Like when you use my data, when you use my hard work, should I, as an art, as soon as someone like perhaps gets a token of ChatGPT or a token of like DALI, should I get like profit from them? Is that like a fear system where we will say, okay, you can have my data if you want, as long as I'm getting profit out of it. You're asking if that's a fair system, but I honestly don't know. Ultimately, we haven't seen it yet. So it's very, very difficult to try to uh, assume the position of every person that might be in that situation. But it's very interesting when we see uh, class action lawsuits, for example, the Facebook one, the, the meta one, so few people that I know that were actually breached on Facebook actually even submitted their name or their information to get um, any kind of compensation if indeed Facebook Meta was found guilty. It, it's kind of like the, the difference between opting in and opting out, right? Very few people opt out, not because they don't want to opt out, but just because they don't have the patience, kind of like you with the cookies, right? Um, for people like me, I just don't accept the cookies. And guess what? For the majority of the time, I actually get to do whatever I want anyway. And I think that's one of the things that Art and I um, experienced and, and really reflects the last chapter of the book, which is creative friction. Art and I think very differently. Potentially, you and I think very, very differently. But ultimately, it's that that interrogation of where the other person's coming from and the push and uh, and asking better questions that allows us, I think, to make better decisions, um, and especially around tools that, you know, are essentially embedded with what, as Art said, you know, are in many cases our negative biases. So we have to push back on each other, I think, to find better tools that will work for more people. I just want to reflect quickly on, before I ask my, my main question, but um, that the music publisher's suit against the LLM makers and some of the author's suit seem to be possibly heading in the direction of, you know, licensing, you know, just the way the streaming music publishers license it. It may end up not being that complicated. Mm -hmm. There's just, it's just going to need, you know, the, the vendors will have to give up a cut, you know, by getting a group licensing agreement. So that's my personal prediction. What's going to happen there. Um, the, but also, I noted, Julia, you mentioned... I think ultimately it's really important to understand that these are disruptors, right? Just like Napster disrupted the traditional music model from, I guess, you know, the past century. Um, and then we had, what, CDs? And then we had, you know, digital files. And all of a sudden, you know, people are just sharing in the most unexpected ways. If you were stuck, you know, back in the 80s or 90s, you never would have potentially imagined all of these changes. But these disruptions happen on an ongoing basis. And obviously, generative AI is um, a disruptor in terms of all business models as well. Yeah, and with Napster, consumers had no problem ripping off uh, the music publishers. So, you know, it, it goes two ways. Um, also, Juliet, I do want to mention that you mentioned Estonia and Finland, two of the most advanced digital countries in the world. 
right? So the U.S., while we have this firepower, we don't have the same progressive outlook on, on you know, it's certainly not nationwide on, on the digital economy and digital society, the way those two countries in particular do. So you're lucky to work there in, a, in such a fertile yes. environment. But so you, anyway, you guys worked on this book before the generative AI explosion really started, right? You still had generative AI, um, right? The early GPT stuff. But we, no, we actually no. didn't have it on our first draft. We remitted our draft, the first draft of the book, uh, September of 2022, and Generative AI, OpenAI came out um, in... Right. Well, that was, that was going to be my question. But the thing is, LLMs and Generative AI were, was already out, at least since 2019, in terms of larger, more clunkier models. You know, it's just the, 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 the nifty, consumer-oriented ChatGPT and BARD weren't out yet. So did you have to go back and, and revise uh, the book or did you have to, you know, add new chapters or, you know, and, and John, we, had to deal with that? We, we had it turned into copy edit and we called up the copy editor and said, how much time do we have to turn this around? And we added, obviously, you know, it was predetermined that large uh, learning models, large language models would, would emerge. What was not predetermined was the way they would be picked up and how rapidly the audience would grow. And it's still not, it's still uncertain. There's still a lot of uncertainties about how it will be used. But we were, you know, we were right on time in terms of taking it back, turning around in about in a few weeks, the draft and, uh, and putting it out there. And, and we've been fortunate because now it's rapidly accelerating growth, but it's, it's growth that um, at least you can see the pattern of it. And it's still congruent with what we wrote. I want to just add one more thing to something you said, Esther, that a lot of the changes have to do with advancing productivity. So when we talk about having control over our data, one of the things that's still uncertain is, does, what is the effect of having more productivity? Does it mean that people have to do less than they can in order to take the time to have creative friction? is part of the problems that people are having with data, part of the problems just the drive to do more and more and more and outcompete others. And that is going to be one way in which people are going to have to figure out how to take responsibility. Do I protect my activity or do I do as much as I possibly can and let the fallout happen as it will? I think another question is that I just thought of is, do people really want to, I guess, be more productive? I have a friend whose dad was a dentist. So I was like, so how's Gen AI? Like, how's that affecting you? And he's like, well, we kind of have to go back, check the AI. So I'm like, is that even like making it better? You know, so that's, that's also been a question that I've been, <laughs> I've been grappling with. I don't know if you guys have come across that. Uh, yes, as well. the number one question that we ask our clients in our AI advisory is, do you really need to throw AI at that? Whatever that product is, whatever that service is, whatever that, um, that shiny new toy is that you're building, do you really need to throw AI at that? Because if you can use a simple logic tree, then you don't need AI. And I think so many people are just excited about the possibilities that even if it's not necessarily coming from them, it might be coming from their board. Oh, we heard about this great thing called generative AI and what are we doing about it? And investors, you know, are, are really throwing away their money in some cases at 
things that just don't make a whole lot of sense that with the regulatory framework that's coming in from all sides, uh, it's just not going to fly. And just from a, a basic risk <laughs> perspective is just not going to happen. Um, but they see that they can make money and they can make money quickly. And I think that a lot of people are caught up in that particular storm. So it, it's about to get even more interesting. For sure. So speaking of regulatory framework, we had the executive order uh, that was passed uh, in October on, I guess, safe and security and trustworthy AI. How effective do you think it's going to be? And to what extent does it reflect some of your principles? We're following it, obviously. And as I read it, it's basically saying there need to be standards and we will set them for all sorts of things like privacy, like defamation, like, you know, uh, managing risk. And it's an executive order. So it's up to different groups. Some are departments, you know, within the administration, some are, um, you know, parts of, you know, committees in Congress or Congress as a whole, some may be other groups, but different standards are going to be set by different groups. And, and what is, nice about the executive order is that it raises the conversation. It essentially says, you know, those of us who are going to be responsible, who are going to pay attention, we now have a legal framework for what matters in the United States. I don't know how far it's gone beyond that other than the conversations are happening and the decisions are kind of lined up to happen. Um, in terms of, you know, frameworks, the European Union is, you know, if, if their AI Act passes, which looks likely for 2024, then that also establishes, you know, some programs will be audited. So not by financial auditors, but by tech auditors, which has never happened before. And others might be outright banned. And then that raises the conversation even more. I think the best of all of these proposals really keep in mind the four logics of power around artificial intelligence, right? We've got government logic, uh, corporate logic, engineering logic, as well as the logic of social justice. And each one of us has, you know, one or more of these logics within us. And I can tell you, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a daily struggle. You know, my little engineering side is fighting with my social justice side and my corporate side who wants to make money. It's like, OK, what decisions do I make that will satisfy all of these different perspectives? And I think that um, the best frameworks that we have do that, really try to keep all of those four logics at play simultaneously. And of course, last month, you know, we also saw, uh, what was it, 28 nations sign on in Bletchley Park. And that's a different kind of safety. That's a longer term safety. Uh, we're talking about highly advanced artificial intelligence and making sure that we don't destroy the planet. And I think that those um, two different views of safety are both sides of the same coin, ultimately, and that they go together. If we can start getting it right now, then we'll have fewer issues longer term. But when the EO came out and you were reading it, did you have one of these moments where you said, hey, that's already in our book? <laughs> we were there anything? Moments. Again, it's based on my dissertation. So, yeah, a, a lot of those. <laughs> it's nice to have people who tell you what's really going on. And in this case, you know, these are the concerns that are top of mind. You know, a lot of regulators are saying if disinformation is rampant, what is the electorate going to believe? 
you know, and, and how clear and, you know, consistent and, and defensible are the things that I or any other political leader or any other business leader says. That's a real issue if you're trying, if you're aware of the consequences of what you do. I, I think that the, um, one of the big challenges for everybody, you know, you can lay down as many rules as you want, but at the end of the day, the actual value and trustworthiness of AI systems depends on the decisions that teams make when they're in a place together. You know, are they thinking about the social justice consequences and the vulnerable people? Are they thinking about the business profits? Do they have people saying on the team, what do we have to do? What has to happen for us to really profit in the short and long run and not be liable for risk? You know, and a lot of the work we do is working with people to have those conversations and to make them effective, not waste a lot of time on them. But again, can you get to the point where with and without the aid of AI, you can say, you can step back and have the perspective, you know, this is not just technology we throw out and see what sticks against the walls. This has real consequences. Let's think about them. Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, we could talk about the EO all day, and I think that would actually be worthwhile um, for a different session. I, I found it to be a pretty remarkable document, like the first the first extensive government document that I've seen on tech that, that was written by people who know tech, you know, other than something coming out of NIST or something, this seems to be written by not the gerontocracy, but by the, by the, by, you know, the, the, the tech people, the up and coming tech people who know what they're talking about. But anyway, my question now is most generative AI vendors claim they have included safety guidelines within their gen AI systems to guard against hallucinations, inaccurate results, bias, et cetera. Uh, you know, uh, some vendors like Anthropic and Salesforce have staked their brands on this stuff, right? Safe AI, that's like a brand. Um, whether it's true or not is, is who knows. Um, so how well do you see these attempts at ensuring that, that, that generative AI works fairly, accurately, and dependably? Like even, even OpenAI claims to have safety so uh, Salesforce, especially with the, uh, this, um, what is it, the Einstein trust layer, right? Mm -hmm. But we've not seen it in practice. Does it work or doesn't it? Um, everybody we've talked to on this podcast says, oh, we got to have a human in the loop. We talked to Wayfair the other day, their head of AI. She said, oh, we're not letting anything go without a human in the middle of the loop. So anyway, how, how, how well does all this talk, all this talk about guardrails, I mean, how much is real and how much uh, is just uh, hype? So I think if you actually consider that question um, from a deeper perspective, you also have to understand that there's a very tightly coupled system in the United States between the government and technology, right? Silicon Valley is funded primarily by the National Science Foundation, especially, you know, when, when uh, companies are just starting up and as they grow and scale and all the relationships that come with that. Um, there's also the realization that, you know, the tools that we deploy, for example, to traffic humans is the same technology that we use to find those humans. So it's less about the technology and the, about the way that we use it. And the more tightly coupled the government is 
uh, with corporate America, the less likely we're, we're really going to see um, a distinction between some of those tools and the way that they are deployed, whether it's by bad actors or by the government or by everyday individuals or corporations. I think what's really key is that this definition of human in the loop keeps changing from the DOD. And so it's very difficult to have conversations, especially cross-disciplinary conversations with all of the stakeholders in AI when we can't even figure out what we're talking about in the first place. Um, so I think that just, just that layer is incredibly complex. Context is very, very complex. Use cases are very, very complex. I wouldn't want to have this conversation lightly. Uh, this might actually be worth a, an entire podcast if you really want to get into this. Yeah, and let me add to that on the solution side. You know, this isn't walking the talk is a major issue in all forms of organizational learning and organizational behavior. How do you get the leaders of a company and the people on the ground to or of a government to follow, you know, to, to do what they say they're going to do, to turn their espoused theory, what we think should happen into actually here's what we do on the ground. There are a lot of methods for doing that, and they all come back to creative friction. They all come back to, you know, let us be conscious of what we do. Just like, so, you know, now there's talk of machine behavior. That's an emerging academic field. And there's organizational behavior, which has always been, you know, which has been an academic field for, you know, 30, 40 years. And human behavior going back to Freud and probably earlier. We're talking about system behavior. And there are ways of anticipating what systems are going to do, what people are going to do, what organizations are going to do, and now what um, you know, autonomous machines are going to do. And what we don't know yet is how they influence each other, how humans influence autonomous machines, influence organizations, and on and on. I think that studying that is one sort of broad solution and then making decisions in a team with an idea towards naming as many of the um, potential outcomes as possible is another. We do a lot of work with scenarios, which is one way of simplifying that. And then, you know, both quantifying and qualifying the use of the, you know, the outcomes of data is another. And each of those has methods and practices that we're going to see more and more of. So one of the ideas that came up earlier, not earliest, but after generative AI and after we saw uh, OpenAI creating uh, GPT-3, 3.5, GPT-4, and all of these is the idea of AI extinction. So what is your view of the AI extinction line of thinking and also perhaps AI pause, that, you know, that letter that was sent and then the idea of like, oh, AI is going to cause extinction is even worse than a nuclear what are your thoughts on that? I love that you're laughing while you say it. So uh, tell us first about the laugh so that we can interpret it properly and then we can jump in with our own. I think I'm a little biased, so <laughs> that's why I'm laughing. So the I think the letter that you're talking about is the one that came out back in March of 2023. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the so, hint letter and Elon Musk signed it as well. Yeah. Right. And and of course, if Elon Musk signs it, then it must be important. Um, <laughs> I think that to me, the most relevant part of that whole thing was that 
I subsequently got contacted by Yashio Bengio, who is one of the grandfathers of AI, who did in fact sign that letter. Uh, he's at the Montreal Learning, uh, sorry, Algorithmic Learning Institute. And he asked me to come to Montreal and moderate a panel, a cross-disciplinarian panel uh, back in August. And the idea was to get the take of many different stakeholders who hadn't um, necessarily signed the letter to get their take on where we're going and what needs to happen next and how do we start you know, marshalling some of these technologies on a global perspective. And I think that those conversations, um, as well as their, you know, when they testified in front of Congress, uh, had a huge impact on uh, the Bletchley Park meetings that we saw last month. So one definitely followed the other. Now, as to whether, you know, six months later, anybody actually paused, well, we saw Italy pause, and we saw Montreal pause, and we saw some individual researchers pause. But for the majority, we pressed the accelerator button, right? We we just decided to launch even more and, you know, see what else we can do and what else we can vet and whatever lawsuits we can, we can launch next. And I think that as I said earlier, if we can get the the framework, the regulatory framework right now with actual enforcement and uh, independent auditing, then we have a much better chance of doing better in the long term. I do think that it's very, very important to consider that, you know, even when countries uh, on the surface do not get along, uh, and we see headlines of those things on a daily basis, and it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, we're in, in another war, that on the back end, when it comes to AI, um, I think that there is a deeper conversation about the longer term implications about AI to make sure, again, that we don't um, completely destroy each other. So I can understand why you would laugh on one side. We see all of these killer robots coming out of sci-fi and that's really kind of fed the, our, our headspace, our society's headspace around the implications of these tools. But I do think that when you've got hundreds of AI practitioners all over the world that are not necessarily invested in big tech or invested in government, but are just saying this because they've been studying this and they see something happening, we have to pay attention. That's a very interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that line of thinking of the idea of like, perhaps it's not only like the creators, because that was kind of what I was thinking of. Mainly some of the creators find it. So how would they want you to pause it? But the idea of like, it's the other side of it, the researchers that have been studying it. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, we covered it today. I paused on Esther talked with a bunch of uh, AI skeptics, AI critics, and even most of them thought that the pause was just not feasible. To me, it was like, Pausing the industrial revolution. You can't just stop something that has this much energy. You know, it's, it's more of a, you know, uh, idealistic, you know, it was a, it was a good goal, like a, a, you know, maybe utopian or whatever, but it was certainly a cautionary and it made an impact. Um, but, um, anyway, going back to regulation in Europe and North America, I mean, there's a difference between Canada and the U S I think Canada is maybe a little farther along, but, uh, I mean, what are the chances of meaningful regulation happening within our lifetimes in the U.S., similar to the AI Act or GDPR? Because here, yes, we have the EO and we have the California Data Protection Act, very halting, very slow. If this EO is just calling for, you know, legislative efforts now, it'll be like six years before there's a, a bill that can be passed. So 
What, yeah, what's going no, on? I, Art, I want to hear what you have to say, but I, I just want to underline something that come out uh, that came out last month that I think kind of epitomizes what we're talking about now. Um, the Mark Andreessen manifesto, I think, in many ways, tried to reposition the idea of techno optimism, uh, and so within that context, there will always be extremes on all sides. I need to look at that. Okay, he's, yeah. he's a pretty pivotal figure in, in, in new tech. He, he basically said, you know, regulation will never live up to what it's needed to do. But let's look at what regulation. Art, really he did. went so much further than that. Yeah. I'm sorry, but no. Yeah. And, and Esther, I see you laughing again. What are you thinking? Sorry, I was, you said he went further than that. So I'm like, so what did he really say? So does it... Does it no, I <laughs> missed it. I, I would like to we, we, we can cover it. Okay, well, that that's not fair. We can't actually have a conversation about it. Um, <laughs> ultimately, the word enemy comes up a lot. Yeah, meaning regulators. Oh, uh, no, not just meaning regulators. Art and I haven't even talked about this, but no, not just meaning regulators about responsible anything when it comes to technology. Oh, right. Essentially, yeah. it, to me, it came across as a um, very late addition to an Ann Randian rant. Kind of like Kevin Kelly in that respect. Um, and Peter uh, Thiel would be have, probably have the same views. But I, I just heard a podcast with Musk talking about regulation, and he's a lot... He, a lot more for actual regulation than, than those two guys, believe it or not. If you listen to his views in depth about AI, he, his view is probably don't regulate me, regulate everybody else. But um, he, Well, no, they're all saying the same thing. No, 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 regulate us, but we'll show you how to regulate us so that you don't stifle yeah. innovation. That's yeah, I, <laughs> I agree with that. The words you know. The word for this is regulatory capture, and that's what a lot of the debate is on now is, you know, our open systems just, you know, laying the groundwork for one form of regulatory, ca regulatory capture, our closed systems laying the form for another. The way that I think we should see regulation is that it establishes norms, and it establishes norms with some penalty. And then everything depends on enforcement. Every regulation is selectively enforced because it's not possible to enforce them consistently because you have different people, different regulators, different enforcers, enforcement groups acting. So therefore, and there's a whole question about clarity. And we talked to some people who said, you know, part of the problem is that existing regulations are so rarely enforced that it leads to an attitude of that, you know, the regulations don't matter. And then another group of people said, you know, government will never have the people who understand the technology as well, uh, which is your point about the uh, executive order. Maybe they do now, you know, and that may be because the awareness of technology is spreading to larger and larger groups of people. But, but I and I'll just say it's important. I'm just going to cut in and say this last thing. I do think that it's important that companies be held accountable. And I also think that it's incredibly important for engineers who at the moment, right, if you're a mechanical engineer and your bridge collapses, you are held responsible. But if you are a computer engineer, a systems engineer, and your system harms people, you're not held responsible. And I think that that needs to change. I think that we need to revisit 
uh, what it would take for computer and, and systems engineers to actually be held accountable for their work, to actually be trained in responsible uh, work ethics so that if people get harmed, you know, there, there's actually some form of accountability. And I think that that's going to take more than just training. I think it's going to take training and retraining from a very professional perspective. So that's a different form of self-regulation, if you will, that I think that computer engineers and systems engineers need moving forward. And I, I, I agree. And it's going to happen after there's a disaster. It, it may take. Regulation usually does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and then we'll get certification. You know, a bridge collapse leads to, uh, you know, structural engineers getting certified. A collapse in this arena may lead to software engineers having to pass some kind of test in order to get to a decision-making point. Oh, that's very... Um... <laughs> that's oh, the best thing. You know, this is like, me being a techno-optimist. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but moving on to the book, um, you guys, obviously, you said you have different perspectives. But what is it like writing a book with each other? What was your process? Kind of like this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when Art told me that one of his books took eight years, I almost told him that I didn't want to write the book with them anymore. I said, I've got four months. I got four months to do this. And then, of course, Generative AI came out. Uh, so we took another three months and rewrote about 30% of the book. And here we are. Were you like the writer and art was the editor or was it, or did one person was, do most well, of the writing? Have you ever seen the movie A, B- A Beautiful Mind with all the paper on the walls? And yeah. So we did that. We went full analog before uploading, you know, the mind maps into digital um, and then writing the chapters, we tried co-writing the chapters, but first it was really about figuring out what the principles actually meant in action. And so what were the stories that best illustrated that? And it was really important to me, and I think ultimately to art, that it be a balanced book, that it's not, it's not um, you know, the, the world is going to die tomorrow and robots are going to, you know, destroy the planet or take our jobs. And it's not about... You know, the world is so much better with technology that we're just going to keep throwing more and more and more technologies at our human problems and hope that our technology solves it. We really wanted to achieve a balance. I think we did, especially given everything um, that happened in the interim in technology. So where do we go from here? Uh, a lot of things are going on in the AI world. Lots of calls from <laughs> exposable AI from you and many others. Uh, and then we have AI uh developers making advances out of your space, uh, especially in the U.S. and the public open, like, sponges ready to adopt it. Do you see the future as promising or full of risk, like you mentioned, with the, something ha- bad has to happen? We have a class right now at NYU that's working on scenarios. They're going to be um, uh, presenting them to the public, actually, on December 4th. And we're they all, you know, there's no such thing as a totally good future or a totally bad future. What happens if dis- disinformation runs rampant? Well, you know, the greater the tide, the stronger the undertow. So people will look for ways to protect it, you know, and verify information. What happens if creative artists lose all of their, you know, ability to make a living or most of it because the competition from, you know, AI generated work is just too great? Well, then, Maybe creative unions will have a resurgence or maybe there will become a real appreciation for human created work. No matter what the future is, it's going to be nuanced and it is going to 
involves some real risks. I think, you know, sooner or later, there is going to be some kind of danger because there often is that becomes tangible. Nuclear power took a hit from Three Mile Island and uh, other disasters that it never recovered from. At the same time, this is such a multifaceted technology that, you know, humanity is already dependent on it, using it in ways that can't be removed either. I'm very, very excited to be born now. I honestly would not have done well in our past human history. I think inevitably I would have not had a, a fraction of the opportunities that I've had now in this current life. The fact that we're alive to be able to start shaping these technologies that will shape you know, humanity for generations and generations to come is a privilege that I do not take lightly. And in that sense, I'm incredibly excited about what we humans can do together, um, not just in, in terms of AI here on Earth, but we're also seeing so many different technologies that are being developed for space. I'm a big proponent of responsible technology, responsible AI. I'm also really, really curious to see what responsibility means if we think about more people on the planet than just the people that live in G8 countries and that we know. And so um, I'm really, really excited to be here. And I, I appreciate the airtime that you've shared with us in the really great conversation, thought-provoking conversation. And I think we need more of that. That's, that's the whole point, is that we need a global conversation around whether we want our AI to serve the tech wars or the human race. Is it about the race for AI supremacy or is it about the race for humanity um, and what we might be able to do together, not just on this planet, but on future planets. So there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to. And thank you again for having us. So thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been very fun and thought-provoking. So thank you, Julia and Art. Uh, listeners, you can buy the book on Amazon or download it from iBooks. For news and information about AI, please visit Tech Target News on the web. And please don't forget to like our podcast on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, as well as leave a review if you can. Thank you guys so much. I love this podcast, and uh, hopefully we can have you next year <laughs> for That's another right. thought-provoking conversation.